Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is a recap of a roundtable that me and my guests presented at Law and Society this year, Race, Racism, and Corporate Law. Many believe there isn't a place for discussions of race in business law, and my guests will start the process of illustrating why it is so important to consider race. I'll start by having them introduce themselves further. First, patience. Hi, thank you so much. Um, this is a fantastic opportunity to continue what I think is a very important question. Um, my name is Patience Crowder. I'm an associate professor at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, where I founded and direct the Community Economic Development Clinic, uh, which is a legal clinic in which I supervise law students uh, providing legal services, pro bono legal services to small businesses and community-based organizations. All right. Thank you for joining me. Our next guest is Renee. Thank you. Really glad to be here. My name is Renee Hatcher. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am an assistant professor at UIC School of Law in Chicago, uh, where I founded and direct a clinic called the Community Enterprise and Solidarity Economy Clinic. Um, similar to patients, we prefer uh, similar to Patients Clinic, we provide free legal services to grassroots organizations, community-based businesses, and cooperatives here in the city of Chicago. All right, thank you for joining me. Our next guest is Lenise. Thanks so much, Carlos. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Lenise Panton, and I'm on the faculty of Columbia Law School. And just like uh, Patients and Renee, I teach a entrepreneurship and community development clinic uh, at Columbia. I was also the founder and director of the clinic, and we represent mostly for-profit businesses in Harlem. All right. And then we have one more guest who will join us late, Alina Ball, and she is a professor of law at UC Hastings and the director of the Social Enterprise and Economic Empowerment Clinic. Now, let's go ahead and get into the discussion. And I'd like to start with you, patients, to get into some of the history. Why is discussing issues of race important in the context of corporate law and business? And why does it matter that the roots of capitalism are in the slave trade? All right. So the first part of that question, um, when I first saw that, I thought, well, why wouldn't it be um, important to discuss? And so I think the answer to that, the second question and the first question are, are um, inherently related. So the way that our country um, was formed and founded and the economic system uh, that we currently operate on assumes that markets are, the, our current economic system assumes that markets are neutral um, and that these are naturally occurring events that just require us um, to follow, you know, the only color that matters uh, is green, the, do the, the color of the dollar. Um, but when we think about how our country formed and how our, our uh, market economy formed, and I know, Carlos, you've written a lot about this, um, it's in connection with our major system of, uh, our major economic system uh, was built around the slave trade. And so slavery, I, I think, is unquestionably inherently racist, which is where we get to an inherently racist um, economic system. 
we've never challenged that. We've never, um, people have written about it and sort of talked about it, but we are just now getting to the point where we could actually sort of unpack what that looks like. And the 1619 Project um, did like a phenomenal job of like taking this and making it accessible in terms of like the economy of it, um, making it accessible to the general public. But when we're talking specifically about corporate law and hello, Alina, and um, business law, these are the functions that move these systems. Law is so inherently tied to the way our economy works um, that we have to recognize that that racism that uh, the economy was built on is also present in our current legal system, specifically corporate law and business law. Now, I think for people who are not professors and people who are even not lawyers, um, it's weird to hear that when we discuss business, teach business, learn about business, um, that we kind of pretend that race doesn't exist. Um, and all of you are directing clinics and trying to take law students and help them engage with businesses um, and trying to help them engage in economic empowerment. Um, you know, how is the lack of that history problematic for the work that you all are doing? And anyone can weigh in or, or start. I'll jump in. I, I'll say that I'm I'm not going to give you a great answer to this question because I think everyone is figuring that out. And I think that we actually need to surface um, the history more so we can kind of figure out how to translate that history into the classroom. And just to sort of piggyback on, on Patience's excellent introduction, I just want to add to be explicit that the whole foundation of the way that our financial and economic system works in this country was created based on slavery and enslavers' um, entrepreneurship, honestly, creating new ways of developing credit, more the mortgage industry, even the banking industry and the insurance industry, all, the, all those um, foundational ways that we think about our economic system in this country was born out of the way in which people moved slavery, moved enslaved people back and forth throughout this country. Um, and we are now, I think, getting a sort of a common appreciation for that fact. And I think as we're thinking about teaching it to law students, I think we're trying to grapple with, this is relevant. How do we bring this into the classroom? How do we pull this you know, 400, 500 years history into the way that we teach entrepreneurship and the way that we teach business law. And I think what we're all trying to say here is that um, we're educating our students and part of that education is educating them about the history of what we've inherited as a country. And as we're learning about business law, we have to really go all the way back to the way that these concepts were first created. Would anyone else like to weigh in on the first question or I can um, ask Lenise the follow-up question if, if no one else would like to weigh in on the first one. All right, Lenise, here's my follow-up question for you. Okay. First, why, why is this history untold? Why do we just skip over the slavery part and jump straight to 1900 when, we, when we're teaching business law? Um, you know, why, you know, or why do you think, I should say? You know, why is this history untold? I think because we, we don't see the connections between corporations and slavery and business and finance and slavery. We think that everything started in 1865 
and Lincoln freed the slaves and let's just keep moving and we've solved all of our problems and let's start learning about business um, after the, when, you know, the industrial revolution, for example, or we might even just go back to the, to um, the fifties when M&A started, right? Like we don't even go back to 1865. We actually start um, in the 20th century, typically with the industrial revolution. And we start to think about, um, you know, this is when our economy and our markets shifted. And that's, I think, the starting point. And I think it's really um, why that is the case. I just think that's the way the books have been written. And we um, inherit those books. And I think as we diversify our community, we diversify the faculty. I think people start to look differently at business organizations. And like your casebook, Carlos, I imagine you are going to unearth some of the things that really haven't been spoken about or thought about um, that deeply. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why is it just is is we've inherited the way that uh, business law and corporate corporate law has been taught, and we've just picked that up and ran with it. Right, Alina. Completely agree with all of Lenise's points. And I would also just add that there's just a lot of history um, and there's a lot of ground that we would have to cover. Um, at, at least in my classrooms, a good percentage of my class is not familiar. They're not deep. They don't have a deep um, background in American history. Um, and so it, it, it means that if a professor is going to do this well, they're going to have to give a good grounding. And there's a lot of information to cover. Um, and so it's missing from the books, as Lenny said, and then it's just a lot of information. Um, and so and then and then trying to fill in some of those gaps. So all of the students are really right there with you. So I don't want to pretend like it's easy work to do. I think for those of us that bring it into the classroom, it is an additional lift um, of work we're doing to, to supplement and fill those gaps. Yeah. And just to piggyback off of, I think, both Lenny and Alina, it's not only that the breadth of history that needs to be covered, but also it's the stories that students have already kind of internalized about America, right? It's it's the stories that are intentionally untold about the founding of this country, about what it means, or just like what is the quintessential American economy and the role of business in that, like this idea that entrepreneurship is a way in which everyone has equal opportunity to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Is a, a classic narrative that I think a lot of our students come into the classroom with. And so as you're going through the history, it's not just trying to cover it, but it's also trying to invite the students to unlearn some of the narratives that have left out the fact that this country was born on the genocide of indigenous people and the taking of land and also on um the slavery of black folks and and the primitive accumulation of our economy comes through those primary two things right and so it's like wrestling with that all the while trying to teach the contemporary concepts of corporations and partnerships and llcs i think is is really a difficult lift as alina uh was saying you know one thing i found that um helps my students to engage when we are working with clients and to understand people who are different from them is narrative. And I think that's I think that's one of the, the greatest gifts that we get from the, the critical theory movement is the idea that if, if we infuse narrative with the law, um, it adds the depth and texture that it needs and kind of helps the law jump off the page. You know, Lenise, I know you've, Lenise, you've done some research um, on some of these historical narratives. 
Um, what are some of the historical narratives you you found that that you think are compelling and that that may be of use in a classroom or even just in in helping people to understand uh, this history? Yeah, I, you guys know this, but I kind of went uh, on a on a little bit of a binge reading slave narratives this summer. I just I honestly just found them really compelling and I couldn't stop because I think as an adult I just hadn't really thought about. Um, slavery in a deep way. Um, I felt like I had learned it, learned about it, um, and didn't think about it. I tried hard, right, the trauma of it, to really not think about it. And somehow this summer, I started to read um, these narratives. And obviously, I think Frederick Douglass um, is the one that I'd recommend, Narratives of the Life of a Slave, his first um, autobiography, and he's got two more. And um, now I'm going to forget the name. Uh, Someone also did a biography of Frederick Douglass recently that I would highly recommend. And when you read the narratives, you can really see the way that slavery was a system and that system built the economic system in this country. And I think sharing those stories um, and really hearing the firsthand accounts of the way that uh, enslaved people experienced Um, bondage and the trauma um, really gives us a perspective and understanding about the way that it worked. Because I don't think, when I think about the way that we were taught our history, narrative was probably not that big a part of the story. Um, So I really think, uh, if I were going to give recommendations, uh, there's a book and I wish I had written the author's name down. So I apologize. Maybe we can put it in the notes or something. Um, Carlos, I don't know if that's something we could do, but the half has, yeah. Okay. The half has never been told. Um, it really is a very compelling uh, story about um, the expansion of land in this country. As Renee sort of talked about the building of the, this country on the backs of um, not only enslaved people, but also the geno- genocide of the indigenous people that were here first. And so this book really, um, brings us, uh, it sort of does a little bit of what 1619 does, but really talks about it from an economic perspective. Um, And then one of the great books I read this summer too was How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Um, And he has a sociological um, perspective where he visits um, Monticello, he visits uh, Angola prison in Louisiana, and he also visits uh, Washington uh, D.C. No, he visits New York City, and then he visits um, a Confederate uh, cemetery. And in those visits, he speaks to people um, about the experience that they are experiencing as they tour um, these places. And as they're thinking about slavery, it was just really fascinating to think about um, how many people, even visiting Monticello, did not know that Thomas Jefferson, our third president, owned slaves. Right. The idea of visiting Monticello and not knowing that. Right. To take the steps to um, have prepare vacation and to take a tour and then to be surprised that our president owned slaves. So that so that's one um, one book that I I found to be very relatable, um, very fascinating as he thinks about the ways that slavery is interwoven in every aspect and every part of our country in a different and, and in different ways. So I highly recommend that text. Yeah, the the half is uh, was the half has never been told is Edward Baptist. Does he pronounce his name Baptist or Baptiste? Baptist. Um, and no. and what I think is interesting too about this about using narrative and and the lack of understanding of history 
you know, not only is Thomas Jefferson a slave owner, he's like in the top 2% of slave owners. Like he owned more slaves possibly than anyone else in Congress. Um, And, you know, one thing that I have discovered in my research is to look at those narratives and think about what the business aspects are that that the sociologists aren't talking about. Um, and, And I think about how law happens because of narrative, right? So with Thomas Jefferson, for example, he owned lots of slaves, but he had lots of debt. <laughs> and in Virginia, the Virginia code explicitly states that you cannot free your slaves, the Virginia code from like 1830 or so. Um, you cannot free your slaves if you have any debt, right? And so when people say, you know, the founders would have freed the slaves, but for, you know, the thing that stops them, the but for, you know, is that they're also horrible with money right? Is that they, they are leveraged, they're improperly leveraged, and they're doing all the things that we tell our students they are not supposed to do when they're running an effective business. Um, so it, it's those kind of business aspects that we just choose not to talk about, and that are the undercurrent of the narratives that I find compelling. Patience? Um, so I was trying to find, yesterday there was a really good, um, documentary shown by this organization called Odyssey Impact. And the name of the documentary was Reflections, um, sorry, History Can't Be Hidden, Reflections from the Promised Land 101 Years Later. And that was speaking specifically, um, it's a documentary about the Tulsa race riot in 1921. Um, And so to get to your question, Carlos, and the reason for this discussion, um, so I think part of why we aren't, we don't, um, we haven't initially learned about the connections between racism, um, slavery, and the genocide of indigenous people. It's because there's been a disconnect between the people who are telling the business and corporate law stories and these histories. Um, And there are lots of reasons for that, right? Like we can assume that a lot of these early storytellers of corporate and commercial law were white men who just saw no reason to connect back to um, these histories and the, and the way that um, our country evolved on these, the, our economic system evolved. So it takes having our faces and our voices and people who are inherently related to these stories to unearth these connections um, for the benefit of our, of our society. And why I wanted to point to this particular documentary is because um, as many folks um, I'm sure know or remember, it's 101 years since the 1921 Tulsa race riot, um, President Biden, visited the site, um, different people took the opportunity to sort of talk about sort of uh, reparations and looking back towards the role of racism in um, compressing uh, expansion and economic health of African-Americans in this country, right? So if we just, if I shortly talk about uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma in the Greenwood District, which was a thriving black commercial district in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, miles and miles of community um, black um, successful entrepreneurs, businesses, public schools, libraries, a thriving black community um, that was destroyed by a white racist mob uh, in 1921. And so folks have, um, and I'm blanking on the number, the sort of the net worth, the economic dollars that were being generated by that community um, that would have provided wealth accumulation for the African-Americans in that community completely wiped out in a matter of hours and days um, and never to be rebuilt or readdressed, right? So the, um, sorry, I realized I was moving my hands and that was causing weird things to happen. Um, So 
Insurance companies did not reimburse business owners. Um, houses did not get rebuilt, at least using uh, insurance. Um, schools were not rebuilt. Libraries were not rebuilt. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, and to be clear, they weren't rebuilt because of racist policies by banks and insurance companies that would uh, say things like riots, race riots were exclusions from the insurance policy, right? So you have a community that builds itself up because of discrimination in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Blacks supported Black businesses because they couldn't go anywhere else. It's thriving. Then racism forced the creation of the community. Then racism destroyed the community, right? Wiped it away. And then racism kept the community from being rebuilt, right? And this just did not happen in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, unfortunately, is one of many Black communities that were destroyed um, through white mobs and racist behavior. And that impacted the uh, wealth accumulation of Black Americans in this country significantly. That and That's one way. There are lots of other systemic ways that um, Black wealth accumulation has been compressed. Um, but those stories don't get told in connection. And you, you can't talk about entrepreneurship and the um, business development and business growth in the absence of how Black entrepreneurs have been persecuted uh, through racist practices and behaviors in this country. And I know it's not, you know, Black entrepreneurs are not the only folks um, who've experienced racism and systemic discrimination, uh, but that's the, the example that I wanted to give. You know, I appreciate that connection because, you know, we talk about the invisible hand and racism is not an invisible hand, right? Like, like it is not a free market. It is not an open market. You interject racism and and markets don't work for us the way that they work for other people. Alina? Yeah, I was just going to um, insert some of the numbers that uh, patients reference. So it's estimated between $30 million and $50 million of property loss were sustained during the Tulsa race massacres. And, uh, you know, patients is absolutely right. There, there wasn't systematic rebuilding of the community. But many people did come back and did try to rebuild the community. I mean, persevered through all of it. And, you know, they weren't compensated through insurance policies that they held. They weren't compensated, uh, you know, by the local government or, you know, by the perpetrators of the, of the crimes. But they did come back to try to rebuild only for the community to again be destroyed during um, urban renewal policies in the 50s and 60s. So there actually was like persistent effort to try to sustain the community even after the race massacre. So it's even, it, you know, it's, it's even worse, right? There's like various um, interjections of, of destruction of the community as an example. Um, and I was just, just to your point in terms of thinking of narrative, um, actually one of the ways that I start my business associations class uh, is not with a historical narrative of, you know, Frederick Douglass, although I think that's, a, that's an amazing idea, but I, I just tell my own narrative and, you know, I tell them, you know, I, I'm the descendants of enslaved, you know, of enslaved uh, uh, Africans in this country. And I am here, literally here in this country, in this classroom because of corporations, right? That's kind of how I started off. And really what I'm trying to get them to think about is most of them are in this classroom because of a corporation too, <laughs> Right. <laughs> There's very few stories we can tell in this country that are not connected. Right. So don't go back to some to some corporate movement or some corporate um, some corporate activity. 
So, you know, to me, the story of race and racism are so closely tied because that, that's just the story of my family. That's the story of me. But what I'm trying to get them to see is that uh, corporations are so powerful in all of our narratives. Um, and it, if, that, if they can take that away, I, uh, that's a win for me in terms of the, uh, the class. Wow, that's really compelling. I never thought about saying that way because as soon as you mentioned, you know, whose life isn't touched by corporations, I think about great migration. Um, I think about company towns. I think, you know, about people who even just came on boats from Europe voluntarily. You know, what is what is driving them to come here? And it's it's corporate power. Um, so the idea that we think, you know, my biggest pet peeve is the distinction between public and private law as if they aren't symbiotic. Um, and as if what we do on the private side doesn't influence the public, you know, the mere presence of human beings and so many human beings on this continent is corporate driven. Um, and so the idea that we can just kind of legislate, you know, people without thinking about corporations at all is it fascinates me. Um, it truly does. All right. Now, Renee, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about how the history of the slave trade and racism in, impacts our present day work and, and what you are doing with black entrepreneurs and businesses. Can you see the echoes of the narratives we've talked about in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's layered in so many different ways, both in terms of like what we see is the structural and the foundational system that our clients are working in. So, you know, new entrepreneurs, businesses, simply the way that that works um, and the way that power functions in this country, right? Um, race is embedded in all of those systems in particular ways that affect a lot of my clients, which um, I would say the vast majority of our clients are um, either cooperatives or community organizations that are Black-led, Brown-led, um, and specifically based in, physically based in communities, those communities here in Chicago. Um, but, you know, so I see it in so many different ways. Um, a lot, for example, of the popular discussion is often around this idea of the wealth gap, which is a term that I tend to stray away from in part because it's simply descriptive and it, in a way, fails to recognize the actual reasons and the way in which we got here, right, which is, is founded in this idea of slavery, of primitive ac accumulation through violence, right, through settler colonialism and the way in which our economic system was born and evolved. Um, and that informs essentially where we find ourselves today. So when we talk about, for example, the fact that Black entrepreneurs simply don't have uh, the same types of access or um, opportunities related to capital to get a loan for their business, to go to family and friends, to um, try to raise the initial funds to actually start the business, right? That is very much based in the way in which this history has played out in our country. Um, but then I also find it in positive ways, right? And so, for example, I think a lot of both the TA assistance related to entrepreneurship, small business development, is from a, a specific lens that doesn't necessarily take into account the cultural histories of Black folks. And so, for example, a lot of my work has been with cooperatives, which are much more aligned with the kinds of cultures and the kind of governance and um, idol organizations that we see in African communal societies and indigenous African societies, right? The cultural component. And so 
we see the echoes of that. Or I see some, uh, a lot of the echoes of that in terms of the ways in which folks are talking about um, managing their business, talking about owning this, um, and ultimately the reason why they're actually starting these businesses. I think even the idea um, that you know business is simply this idea of maximizing profit, that innovation somehow is just only tied to this idea of just making money um, and not necessarily for the betterment of community or simply to provide the things that we need. Um, is one that is just simply awesome, very much like base supremacy kind of culture. Um, so, you know, I, again, I, it's layered both in terms of the structural system, but also I think the ways in which we have come to talk about and think about uh, entrepreneurship, business development, and what that looks like specifically for Black folks in this country. Lenise? Yeah, so thank you. I, I was just reflecting on what Renee just said, but one one thing that was uh, compelling to me, um, uh, you mentioned the wealth gap, and I think patients also mentioned the wealth gap. And um, just going back to the 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 thought about thinking about narrative, um, I and one other book that I read, and again, I I, I would love to actually think about um, a reading list around this issue, but I. Um, read Booker T. Washington's book Up From Slavery, which I, I definitely, you know, it was interesting reading it now with like a 2022 lens and and like the, you know, the way we think about respectability politics these days. But um, the one takeaway that I had was he is someone that straddled both um, enslavement and then um, freedom, right? Um, he came of age just as, uh, um, as you know, the, the civil war was coming to an end. And something that I think I've never reflected on is that slavery just ended and that was it, right? We talk about reparations, we talk about 40 acres and a mule, but he literally talks about people didn't know what to do, right? When you've controlled people for hundreds of years and you haven't educated them, you haven't taught them the financial system, they don't even know what money is. They don't have money. They can't read, they can't write. And then you say, good luck. And that's it. Um, there's so much power in recognizing that trajectory to get from 1865 to 1921 in Tulsa, right? And to think about how as a people to build that out of literally nothing. And that was the narrative that Booker T. Washington talks about is his experience of emancipation was one day you are enslaved and then the next day you're not, but the resources have not changed at all. So you have people that had one shirt on their back to then 50 years later create Tulsa, right? And so on a personal level, I found that I find that incredibly um, empowering. And I also think uh, back to what Renee was saying about um, supporting Black entrepreneurs. Um, we have, as a people, we are incredibly innovative and entrepreneurial. And I think our history clearly reflects that, that we were able to literally, entrepreneurship is building something out of nothing, right? And so to start with emancipation and to build something like Tulsa and then to have it knocked down, right? And then now we're here in Harlem and we're in Chicago and we're in um, the Bay Area and we, we're seeing the small businesses and entrepreneurs that we are working with in our clinic. Um, and they are not able to make inroads on the entrepreneurial system as it's set up to date. Um, and somehow the way the narrative has been spun 
is our angel investors, our venture capital investors haven't found, you know, the, the founder that they can support. It's not a cultural fit or the idea isn't innovative enough. Again, you know, look back to our history, to how incredibly innovative and resilient and powerful Black entrepreneurs are and have the ability to be, but our current system operates as though, you know, there's this mythical white male founder out of Stanford that's going to, you know, make everyone the most money. And so um, I just wanted to share that. I think the story, the, the narrative and the proof of where we've come from to where we are now is incredibly empowering. And I think it's important that, that we think we talk about that as well. Absolutely. Renee? Yeah, and I really appreciate that, Lenny. I think one of the things that you mentioned, which is um, part of how we have to also start making the connection between not just slavery and anti-Blackness and racism, structural racism in this country, and when we have these conversations um, about not only entrepreneurship, but like a lot of us who are more broadly in kind of the community economic development space, right? part of the story that never really gets fleshed out that is like very much tied to the way in which the law functions in which society has developed and the investments from the state is not simply that people don't have access to capital slavery because of you know the lack of intergenerational wealth opportunities for black folks but it's also simply the way in which black folks have consistently been robbed of their inputs or taxes paid to this country in terms of how those taxes locally get invested to infrastructure, to our neighborhoods that we know have been divested from, from, you know, and we can trace in terms of federal programs, we can look at local um, planning and in terms of what black communities have received um, or how they have not received, right, the same types of resources, even though we have been paying in, right, the same uh, the same as other citizens, right? And, and in white communities who might receive, you know, greater um, infrastructure and streets and the suburbs and having us to mortgages to actually go live in suburbs and having sufficient in our schools, right? So I think that's part of the, the way in which we have to think about like structural racism, just on a local level, that spatial and um, spatial racism and the way in which spatial um, inequality actually affects opportunity related to Black entrepreneurship and to Black small business development. You know, I, we've, we've, I feel like we need a book club and a book list and a seminar because, you know, as y'all are speaking, it makes me think of this book called Banking on Freedom. Um, and it's written by a professor at Mississippi. Her name is, God, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but it's called Banking on Freedom. And, you know, what I find interesting and, you know, to, to tie it with what Renee and Lenise are saying about the innovation um, it's essentially, a, it starts with the Freedmen's Bureau, which is allegedly supposed to distribute money to recently enslaved persons and also to be a bank for these recently, you know, enslaved persons to deposit their money and how the money is embezzled and stolen and disappears. So, you know, it's a theft of black wealth immediately following emancipation and in response, Black churches, Black co-ops formed their own banks so that people could get loans, um, often microloans, um, but also so they, that they could bank safely. And what's really, really interesting about her book is that it was, a, it was women's work to run the bank, right? It was the 
like women's auxiliary of the church that would form the co-op and be responsible for the money because in, you know, many black churches, women's are other ones doing the service work. Right. And so part of the service work uh, was distributing the money, but they also developed norms and standards for how they lent money um, that, you know, was looking at the morality and looking at like, you know, their fitness and, you know, is this somebody who's out drinking all the time or is this someone who's responsible? Um, and there, you know, all throughout the South, essentially, there are numerous black banks that are being run by black women that are successful um, and that are helping to develop these communities that then eventually get subjected to race riots. Um, but it just, it goes to that innovation that Lenise is, is talking about, like making a way and finding a way to support the community and fund the community, sometimes through donations, sometimes through deposits and, and, and build these things up so that it is possible for there to be a Tulsa massacre. Um, and I think that story of entrepreneurship is more accessible and more compelling than the guy in Silicon Valley, right? Like that is far more interesting and compelling and shows that it really is possible for anyone and everyone to use entrepreneurship and innovation um, to, to build wealth and create wealth and make things instead of just, just being a taker. Now, I would like to shift the discussion to something I, like people say every episode when I talk about corporations and business ends up here. But Alina... I would love for you to talk to us about whether corporate law scholars should be discussing reparations and what is what else is it? What contributions business scholars can make in understanding the need for reparations? Sure. Uh, okay, so to answer the question directly, yes, I think corporate law scholars should be thinking about and really wrestling with corporation uh, with reparations. So absolutely. Um, to try to add a little, put, to put a little bit of meat on those bones, I, I, I might digress a bit. But Patience told us about a documentary, The Truth Cannot Be Hidden. I have not seen this, but I love the title because um, with the clients I work with, the history is so on the surface. So all of my clients, for example, are social enterprises. They are businesses, both for-profit and nonprofit, that are are directly trying to impact a social or environmental um, issue through their business. So it's not like 10% donation. It's like we run this business in a way that is trying to address a social ill. So these are my clients. And overwhelmingly, these clients uh, are, these companies are also run by individuals of color. Um, that's in part because of the neighborhoods that we have a priority to work within, which are economically um, marginalized communities, which in our country are also overwhelmingly communities of color. Um, so in looking at these, uh, these centers of entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and what are the issues that um, our clients are addressing, so many of these issues have a direct line to, the, to both the racist history and the current implementation of racist policies in our country. So that, that's why I'm like, oh, the history cannot be hidden, right? It is It is there. It is in plain sight. What so many of our entrepreneurs are currently working on right now is because of both legacy and continued practices of racial inequity. So to the extent that scholars are looking at that, right, looking at different hubs of entrepreneurship and where is innovation 
um, that is uh, community driven? What is it focused on? What are its goals? What are what are, what what are these entrepreneurs addressing? Um, it, it's addressing both the legacy and the continued uh, racist practices. So, with with that being the fact then it really causes us to have to say, we need to address this, right? We need to address these root causes, right? So it's not just about um, allowing the business to get off the ground easier, right? It's about addressing the same issues that these businesses are trying to address at their root causes. Um, and I think reparations has to be part of that conversation. What it will look like, I'm not sure, but I think we're uh, and by we, I mean business scholars, we're late to the table to really take this up. Um, and I'm looking, I, I'm, I'm excited, one, because of all of your work um, and, and because of the work of others. I know we're not the only ones doing this type of work, um, but it seems like we're, we're like really starting to talk about this in a way that seems like generative and, and exciting. And I'm looking forward to like the next decade of scholarship that comes out of both the work that we're doing and the questions that we're asking as business law scholars. Um, okay. So I hope that was, I hope that addresses the question. Yeah. Patience. Can I add something to that? Um, thank you, Alina, for that. I thought that was uh, super well stated. So Audrey McFarlane, who's a um, law professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, um, did a lot of, uh, one of her early, well, I won't say early, but this was just several years ago, wrote an article about um, the way that values are inherently driving economic development and sort of physical development. Um, and more specifically talking about how anti-Black um, the development process has been historically in this country and sort of thinking about like why are why is black life so devalued? Like why did gentrification happen? Why can't black and brown people be in these communities that are you know um, turned over and all of a sudden um, you know made popular and are places that people want to live, but you know not with the black and brown people who've been in that community for so long. And so I'm I'm not doing her work justice. But the point that I want to make in taking that from sort of a, an economic development, redevelopment context and bringing it into business law and corporate law, um, is there's, there's some values that our profession needs to acknowledge in terms of how our experience in this country has been consistently devalued by our financial institutions, by our law firms, by our banking interests. You know, lawyers, corporate lawyers in particular, business law lawyers get off with it, get it off easy because they want to say they're just representing their client's interest. But, you know, the execution of their client's interest has directly impacted um, the, the well-being and health and economic health of African-Americans in this country. And until we, those areas explicitly unpack their role in where we are today, I, I don't think, um, I think that's part of the reparations process. It has to be, it's, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the economics of it all, but we have to recognize that dismantling the system really means interrogating how black life, quality of life has been devalued by these systems in the first place. And, you know, you see that in the medical um, uh, field industry where people are paying more attention to the black experience, but we, our work and the work of others also needs to, to, to take on this task. Yeah. I think we have a habit, not we, but we as, as corporate lawyers and ec economists of, of pretending the numbers are neutral um, of saying, you know, this land is just worth less. 
through this black neighborhood and it would only cost you 10 cents to build this highway here, whereas it'll cost you $10 to build the highway over there. So it's just plain economics that you should dismantle this neighborhood and put the highway through here without thinking about the complexity behind the numbers. Um, and I think that's intentional. And it, it's it's also a, you know, the reason that I'm, we don't talk about why we value that. We don't talk about why the black neighborhood is 10 cents instead of $10. Um, and I think that's the failure of the economists and the lawyers who are just like, I'm looking at the spreadsheet. Um, but I also think when we are assessing who deserves reparations, how we get reparations, what do reparations look like, you know, we have to think about the fact that the system of racism is embedded in our unconscious thinking across the board, right? That that actuaries are not neutral, that economists are not neutral, um, that everyone is coming up with these neutral numbers and that the numbers that are not lying, they're, they're telling the truth, but it's telling a truth that deserves the full story and deserves the complexity. Renee, it feels like you're about to say something. No. No, I just, I was, I was so appreciating um, the points that both you and patients just made um, about structures and processes, right? And how they're inherently racist. Um, because I think a lot of us, you know, I think we come to this work in different ways, both in terms of our personal experiences and also in just being in the space working with clients. Um, you know, one of the things that I remember I was trying to figure out in law school is like, well, how do you, how do you increase the quality of life and make sure that people have access to the needs and the goods and services that they need, but not in a way that um, is both a tool like gentrification as a tool of violence, right? And as a tool of uh, dismantling communities and support systems um, specifically for, you know, black community cities and thinking about that on a larger level. And, you know, as we talk about the reparations conversation, I feel like there's so many different pieces to that conversation, but part of it too, I feel like I'm always eager to talk about, well, how are we also going to address the, the present situation that we find ourselves in? It's because these systems continue. These, there are plenty of policies that are still in place that are causing the same uh, type of harm that our communities have suffered for generations. Um, and so I'm always interested in both thinking and getting to the history and like the root of it, but also like, what does that mean for present day and like the systems that we find ourselves that, that are still in place? Absolutely. Lenise? Yeah, no, thank you. I was just thinking about, about what you guys were just saying. And, and, I, and I wanted to say that I think that um, business law scholars have a lot to contribute in terms of thinking about how we can work with economists, how we can work with, um, you know, bringing this idea of private law and sort of making that connection between the way that it has served the public and served our system and, and just, um, I think, bringing that to the surface. Um, I think really um, surfacing the inequity that business law uh, contributes to. And I just also wanted to say one thing that my summer exploration revealed, which I didn't realize, is that the federal government currently spends millions of dollars on Confederate monuments, um, Daughters of the Confederacy, I think 40 to $50 million annually is spent on um, descendants of, of the Confederate soldiers. So I just want to say that I, I think a few years ago, reparations was this like lightning bolt, this hot button topic and like this impossibility and like no way. And I just want to say 
looking at history, looking at facts and really understanding we are already paying money to certain, you know, to, to those that, um, perpetuate racist ideology, right? And who were traitors for our country. So this idea that we don't value Black lives and this notion that we need to pay back the people that built this country is a topic that's taboo and that business law scholars can't discuss it. Well, we have to look at what we are already, how we are voting with our our dollars and with our money and the federal government is already involved in supporting um, these racist communities. I think it's also worth noting that when the Civil War ended, there were reparations paid. It was paid to slave owners yes, to, compensate, to compensate them for their property loss. All right now, I'd like to take the last few minutes talking about pedagogy. We are all professors. Um, and this is kind of an open question to everyone. Um, a few years ago, I guess it was maybe two years ago, um, there was a bit of a controversy on, the, on one of the business law professor listservs because people asked, how are you incorporating race? How do you teach race in the classroom? Um, and a lot of white men replied, unsubscribe. And a lot of white men said, um, we shouldn't be doing that. And so anytime I talk about pedagogy, um, I would love for y'all to, to just explain why. Why is it important for us to be talking about race and racism and slavery in our classrooms and to our students? Um, and anyone can jump in on, on answering the why. Sure, I can start because we're preparing our students for practice, which is another way of saying we're preparing our students for reality and race and racism is part of reality. So in providing this context to our students and allowing them to think critically on these issues, we are better preparing them to understand the various different components of reality. Um, so that's just sort of like a like a basic why um, an additional why, at least for me, that motivates me is because I want my students to partner, get excited and partner with me in trying to dismantle some of this stuff. So I understand that's probably going to be a smaller group of the students that I'm trying to, to, um, that I'm going to be able to reach. Um, but I, 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 I use the opportunity in the classroom to give them, um, an opportunity to think about, oh, if I can understand how, various types of law, but definitely corporate law continues to subordinate, then I can think about how to use that to also um, um, facilitate empowerment. I love that answer, Alina. And the only thing I wanted to add, which I think a lot of you have already touched upon, is that the traditional uh, pedagogy related to business law is racialized for all the reasons that we've just been talking about, right? So one, I think we have to recognize that just in the way that these systems have both evolved and the way in which they function. And so part of it is just telling the fullness of what that actually is and what that looks like, and then demonstrating the ways in which what currently exists, the actual way in which business law currently functions, is continues to produce racist results, right? And and uh, reinforce racist structures in our society, right? So I think part of it is that it's not that we're um, we're simply trying to reveal a more full truth of yes. what currently exists related to business law. And I just want to say, I think a one way to look at it is that we are examining markets, right? And we're trying to get, we're saying that markets can solve our problem, all the problems of our time. Well, we can't do that unless we examine the role that markets and corporations played in creating the challenges that we're trying to solve. 
um, all lawyers are subject to the rules of professional conduct um, within their state. And the preamble to the rules say that lawyers are responsible for um, the special quality or the unique quality of justice. Um, and so justice is supposed to run throughout all disciplines of practice, including corporate and business law. Uh, and that's why I think it's critically important that we talk to our students about these issues. And I'll just, you know, end by saying the reason I think it's important is because I like to teach my students reality <laughs> and I like to teach my students the law and, and you know, what is real, not some fairy tale. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, if, if there isn't the time or place to, to, to give them a dose of reality and to help them understand what's happening, it, it's law school. Like it's, it's our last chance to, to give them accurate histories, to give them accurate narratives um, and to give them the accurate tools they need to both be culturally competent as they practice, but also to have a, an accurate reflection of what the law is and what it says. And, you know, when we say, you know, we only talk about race and con law, or we only talk about race and property, but we don't talk about race in contracts or corporations, it just doesn't give our students a full picture. And so, you know, that's my motivation for doing so. All right. Well, that is the end of our hour, which always goes super, super fast. So I would first like to thank all of my guests for appearing. Um, I should say we're doing this again um, in South Africa, which is exciting, although it'll be virtual in South Africa <laughs> in December. Um, and I, I would love to continue, you know, starting a book club, starting seminars and just providing, you know, other scholars and, and even just the general public with this information, because I think it is missing from from both business law education, regular business education, and just education in general. Um, so I, I greatly appreciate the work all these women are doing, and I appreciate them joining me on the podcast. Now, if you ever miss an episode of this podcast, you can catch it anywhere podcasts are played. You can also find it on the Voice America website, and we have a YouTube channel, Get In Common. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or reach out to me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening and thank you so much for my guests. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.